Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So the armies of ancient Greece and Rome have gained legendary status. Both militaries successfully conquered much of the known world in their respective eras. But what made them so formidable? Was it technological innovation, novel strategies, or just plain old grit? Well, my guest today on the show argues that it was the Greek and Roman armies' reverence for their mythic past that made them great. His name is Jay Linden. He goes by Ted. He's a classical scholar and the author of the book, Soldiers and Ghosts, A History of Battle in Classical Antiquity. Today on the show, Ted and I discuss how the ghost of the Iliad and the Odyssey haunted Greek soldiers, the ways in which both the Greeks and the Romans ritualized warfare, and why the ancient Greeks made a competition out of pretty much everything in life. Uh, We also discuss the competing virtues of courage and discipline within the Roman army. This is a riveting conversation with some fascinating insights into ancient notions of masculinity. After the show, check out the show notes at aom.is slash linden, that's L-E-N-D-O-N, or you can get links to uh, resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Okay, Professor Linden, welcome to the show. Uh, Mr. McKay, thank you very much for having me. Uh, so your book is called Soldiers and Ghosts, and it's about battle in classic antiquity. It's talking ancient Greeks, ancient Romes. Um, and I love this book because uh, I'm a classics guy. And uh, But I thought it was interesting. You begin your book about uh, ancient Greeks and ancient Romans talking about how American soldiers won't leave a fallen comrade behind, even if they're dead. And then you say that this puts them in the company of these great warrior civilizations like ancient Greece and Rome. How so? Well... I would I would limit that to a certain degree to Ro- to Greece because uh, the Romans seem much have to have been much less fastidious about picking up their dead, um, but um, the Greeks were um, uh, very very finicky about this. What would happen would be that um, they'd have a battle, uh, and then one side would turn to flight. And um, the side that was victorious would basically move forward and stand on all the bodies, Um, not physically stand on them, but stand over them. And then the losing side would have to send a herald who's protected by the gods to ask the winning side for the bodies back, Um, that is to say the bodies of their dead. And when that happened, that was an admission of defeat. So they had this very formal way of indicating victory and defeat. Uh, and then the then the winning side says yes, um, 
and uh, then people from the losing side come and and pick up the bodies of their people, which must have been, if you just think about it, kind of weird. I mean, you've just been fighting, and now you're sort of all um, all sort of dragging bodies around together. Um, very odd. But in any event, um, they they will then carry them home, uh, the bodies uh, uh, to be buried, um, and uh, the winning side uh, will uh, build a, a trophy. Uh, at the point where uh, the decisive um, uh, effort in the battle happened, or at the turning point, which is what trophy means in Greek, the turning, the turning, and then um, <clears throat> and, and that's the end of things. But as you can see, it's all very, it's all very formalized. Um, uh, the Greeks believed that that if you didn't bury someone um, or cremate them correctly. Um, there would be uh, they would never be able to get properly into Hades and would wander around as ghosts um and that was of course a very bad thing to have ghosts wandering around the place so i mean everybody knows the greek custom of putting a coin under the tongue of uh, of a person uh, who's being buried so that they can pay the ferryman to take them over into Hades well you know burying them properly in other, in every other respect is uh, is also very important and that the greeks are terrified and horrified by the prospect of bodies lost at sea uh, because they can never be um, properly recovered and and uh, and sent down to Hades. Um, I mean, every class of this knows what, what what I just told you. What interested me was to discover that um, uh, that a parallel process has evolved in the American armed forces, uh, and uh, that um, the American armed forces will happily fight and endanger living soldiers to recover the bodies of dead soldiers. Um, and what's interesting to me about this uh, is that, and of course, you know, you can, we can see the ritualized quality of it with the, uh, the ceremony um, at the airplane when the body is taken back to the States, the ceremony at the airplane when the body arrives in the States, the, the uh, military funeral, all that type of thing. Um, it's not identical, but obviously parallel to what the Greeks are up to. What really interested me about it is we can see it happen. That is to say, unlike the Greek custom, which doesn't seem to exist uh, in the Iliad, but exists in historical time, but we don't see it evolve, uh, we can really see it evolve in the American case. Uh, if you look, if you read books about the Second World War, and I'm thinking here particularly of Eugene Sledge's With the Old Breed. It's a great book. Uh, yeah, great book uh, about particularly about the Battle of Okinawa. Um, they're very he, he and his comrades are very indifferent to the presence of American dead bodies. Um, they do not feel any particular need to uh, evacuate those bodies, and in fact, there are unpleasant scenes in which they use those bodies. They pile them up to be fortifications. Um, and um, uh, so they, in that generation, generation in the forties, they really don't seem to have had this 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 code. Um, and um, but it's very clearly very much there, uh, particularly in the Marine Corps, but also in the other services by the Vietnam War. And my suspicion is um, that it derives from the Battle of Chosin Reservoir. Uh, or the retreat from Chosin Reservoir in the Korean War, um, where the Marines left a large number of comrades' bodies behind. 
And I think they sort of made a corporate decision then that they were never going to do that again. And um, that's and and acting on that then um, elaborated itself through the rest of the American services, so that this has become a an an important part of the American way of war. As I say, I'm interested in it because we can sort of see it evolve. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. So, like, what we're seeing then is is a ritualization of warfare. Absolutely. And so let's go back to the ancient Greeks. So they had this very elaborate ritual for what to do with uh, the dead bodies after a battle. Were the Greeks, and we'll talk about some of the other ways that the Greeks were, they ritualized warfare, but were the Greeks always this ritual when it came to battle? And if not, when did this ritualization begin? Well, um, it, uh, to a certain degree, I mean, it, uh, it it appears in a kind of uh, in a place we don't know much about. That is, we have the Iliad, um, and the Iliad doesn't seem to involve this anywhere near this degree of ritualization. Um, of course, it's fictional. It's an epic poem. Uh, it's based on material from 1200 to 700 BC, all all muddled together. So it doesn't necessarily really describe a real world. Um, but in any event, it, um, it is useful in the sense that we can say at least that at some point, uh, it doesn't look like the Greeks did this. Uh, but when the Greeks do pop into, um, uh, in, into our vision uh, around 500, AD, uh, 500 BC, I'm sorry, um, they do um, have, it seems, this whole system of dealing with the dead uh, already well-developed. Uh, and uh, we can't really um, we can't really speculate about um, exactly when it comes about. Uh, I personally can speculate about why it comes about uh, because I think it has to do with um, the evolution of Greek warfare to create uh, to make it into a more perfect composite competition. Uh, and one of the things that this system does is it very clearly indicates winners and losers of battles, which, of course, no other um, no other society has been quite as efficient as coming up with a way in which right after the battle, the loser admits that they lose so that there's no question about who won. Uh, I mean, it's, it's really an astonishing, uh, it's in many ways, an astonishing human achievement if it's very important to you to have a clear uh, indication of who won and lost. And it is important to the Greeks because not only do they compete individually between each other as 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 people, but their city states are fully anthropomorphized and compete as um, uh, and compete with each other as if they were people. And when two Greek armies fight, it's two city states fighting. And you want just as you want to know very clearly who is the most brave soldier. So clearly, you want to know very clearly which is the most brave city-state, uh, and therefore you evolve methods of making creating a clear victor and a clear defeated. So you, you yeah, this isn't right. So you talk throughout the book about this competitive drive the Greeks had. They wanted to be the best and like what erite, right? Excellence. I mean, where did this drive come from? And did did other ancient cultures have the same desire for competition that the ancient Greeks had? Um, we cannot tell exactly where it comes from. It seems to exist very clearly in um, uh, in the Homeric poems, which is the earliest Greek evidence we have, uh, and also more or less more or less contemporaneously, uh, Hesiod points out the problems with it. 
um, uh, because it creates strife and civil war and various other things. So uh, the Greeks already knew that it wasn't great. Um, what I would say to that is that what sets the Greeks aside is their eagerness to compete in every possible realm. Um, the people I know about most, of course, are the, the other people I know about most are the Romans, and uh, they compete in war. Uh, and in being heroic in war and in politics uh, and in certain other limited realms, which we'll be talking about. Um, but it would never strike the Romans to consider, for example, bird interpretation as a competitive enterprise or, um, or, the, uh, or abusing people as a competitive enterprise, as it appears in the Iliad, or steering a ship as a competitive enterprise. Uh, the thing about the Greeks is that they uh, they elaborate this so that there's nothing nothing is left cooperative. Everything is made competitive, um, and if you wish to get uh, five ancient Greeks to cooperate with each other, the best way to do so is simply to announce the fact that you're going to have a competition in being cooperative. Um, otherwise, uh, it really it really won't work. Uh, they um, they do not develop. Uh, some people think they develop later. I don't, frankly. Um, but they, but they really do not develop um, cooperative virtues, and um, they organize a society which is carefully based on uh, exploiting competitive virtues. Uh, so that, for just for example, in classical Athens, uh, they don't have taxes. Um, what they do is they ask the richest people in the in the society to to contribute to the great expenses of the society um, to keep to cre creating warships and and organizing um, uh, plays and things like that. But it's intensely competitive. Uh, the best warship of the year gets a prize. The best play of the year gets a prize. We know that about all the tragedies, right? That some of them win and some of them don't. Um, but that's how they um, that's how they fund their entire state. Uh, essentially by creating a, a series of competitions among the richest people uh, and uh, letting the poor people um, who are perceived to be perhaps either less competitive or less useful in this sort of respect mostly um, have a free ride. It's interesting. So let's go back to the title of your book. It's Soldiers and Ghosts. And you argue uh, throughout the book that both the Greeks and the Romans, particularly the Greeks, they were haunted by the ghosts of their past and that the way the innovations they made uh, in warfare were was directed by this tradition. And for the Greeks, it came from the Iliad, the Homeric epics. Um so let's talk about some of the, this, this, the, the rules that the Greeks got from the Homeric epics on what made a good battle a good battle, right? So like, for example, they were, the Greeks were particularly concerned about glory and honor in battle. And you see this in, in the Homeric epics. Uh, so you talk about some of the, the weird customs or rules about, you know, the governance of, you know, who got glory and honor and who didn't and how this was inspired by the Iliad. Yes, um, I, the uh, the Greeks do look back uh, continuously, uh, and um, one of the things that I particularly got interested in uh, is um, the way in which, although in around 500, um, well, in the Persian Wars in the in the in the uh, in 480 479, um, there seemed to be quite a lot of archers in Greece. Uh, that is to say, 
archers are a normal part of Greek armies, or at least the Athenian army. Um, that by the fourth century BC, archers seem to have disappeared. And um, that's very odd, you'd think, because this is an effective technology. Um, there's nothing wrong with the bows that they use. There's no technical technological reason for this. Um, and what's even more surprising is that they tend to be replaced uh, by a type of light infantry who throw javelins, and when they run out of javelins, throw rocks. And you think, wow, you know, that's that's peculiar. Now, Greek has Greece has a lot of rocks. But there aren't a lot of other um, uh, there aren't a lot of other armies of which I know which have institutionalized the throwing of rocks, as it were, or have preferred systematically have made the choice to prefer javelins, which of course have a very short range, uh, to arrows, which have a much longer range. And um, so this seems to be a case of actually technological devolution. And my thinking on it is that um, javelins, or the throwing of spears specifically, is unquestionably heroic in the uh, in the Iliad. There's no question that every hero, that's one of the ways you fight. You stab with your spear, but you also throw your spear. Uh, and uh, there's never any criticism of that. That's regarded as, as, as firmly heroic. And the same is true of throwing rocks. But archery is regarded in the poem as dubiously heroic. There are at least two different ways of looking at it. The actual archers, uh, people like Pandarus, for example, think of what they do is heroic. But the, uh, a lot of other people basically say, no, archery is not heroic. If you want to be a true hero, you must stand face to face to the enemy with the enemy and fight him close in. And that is probably the, probably more people say that than uh, in the Iliad than praise archery. That's interesting. So there's this idea like the archery was kind of wussy. Was <laughs> yeah, archery was kind of wussy. And my and my argument, my my way of thinking is that it is this influence um, that spear throwing is clearly heroic, while archery is dubiously heroic, which operating on time over time in the minds of the Greeks finally drives archery out of their way of fighting and replaces it with with spear throwing. And so the other aspect that uh, the Greeks looked to um, to, the, to the Iliad, the Homeric epics, was this idea of one-on-one battle, single combat, right? You see in the Iliad instances where there's sort of like this battle going on, but then Homer calls out two fighters, Hector and Achilles, and they fight right. one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Um, what did the Greeks do to, I don't know, some, in a way, replicate or give homage to that idea of you know, single combat while still fighting as a unit? Well, for a very long time, they simply still do single combat. I mean, we have long lists of people. This is mostly before 500. Uh, We have long lists of of single combat victors, uh, that they still had the custom of actual challenge before battle. And some guy would come out and say, you know, I am such and such, I challenge you, uh, I challenge anyone from your army to come out and fight you. And indeed, there's an Athenian we know by the name of Sophonies, who we're told uh, defeated numerous opponents in this way, and he's still alive at the Battle of Plataea. So this is, a, this is, a, um, this is something they're still doing just before the lights come up uh, on, on Greek history. But uh, my my view is that uh, the problem with single combat in reality is that it produces very confused battlefields. Uh, and if you have groups at the one hand fighting and single people fighting, 
uh, it's very difficult to tell. It's very difficult to tell who has been heroic and who has not. And so, um, in, in my view, what the Greeks did um, was remove, in order to keep the heroic quality of combat, in order to keep it uh, competitive, uh, they they remo- they removed themselves, withdrew from from the mixed combat of uh, of, of the Iliad, and instead said, "Okay, we're going to compete in one thing, uh, and we're going to compete in one thing that is very easily judged, and that one thing is standing your ground, uh, because if you're sort of placed in a matrix, it's fairly clear to everyone around you whether you stand your ground or don't." Uh, and that is what I think the phalanx is ultimately uh, the, the the mass formation of the classical Greeks, um, in which the, the heavy armed hoplite fights. It's a way of testing uh, individual soldiers to see who is the bravest by who can stand his ground the longest. But since the phalanx also represents the city, it's a way of testing the city-state uh, to see which city-state has the same sort of courage. Um, one, of, one of the things that makes it so useful to the Greeks is that, is that it, it's not, it is the perfect analogy in that you test the same thing at both levels, uh, and that's what they want to do. They want to test, they want the bravest man to whom they can give an award, which they do do after the battle, sometimes second and third place too, um, but they also want to know which city is bravest. So they come up with this somewhat unhomeric, or at least unle- or at least debated in Homer, a form of heroism, which is standing your ground. They make that the primary form, um, and um, they organize a system of fighting around it um, so that they can tell uh, who is going, who, uh, in the real world, who is the bravest. Whilst if you actually try to do, if you try to replicate Homeric fighting in the real world, uh, it's incredibly confusing and chaotic. And you're not going to be able to tell who the bravest is. Right. So this is interesting. So, and I thought what was interesting too, is you argue that, you know, the phalanx, it's not, I mean, it's not a really effective way of warfare. I mean, a more effective way would be sort of guerrilla tactics, right? But as you said, this allows the city states and individual Greeks to know who's the best. So it's off. I mean, it really is phalanx battle is like a, a football game in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's highly rules bound in ways I mean, not only in in respect, uh, we've already talked about what happens after battle, but before battle, um, there's a there's also a series of things that sort of has to happen. Um, everybody lines up. Uh, you don't actually agree on a time to fight, but in practice, you tend to wait for the other guys to to to, uh, to be lined up. Um, you advance. Um, you sing a hymn to the god Apollo called the Peon. Um, there is, there are sacrifices to make sure that the gods are on your side. Um, you uh, you sing. Um, there's a special magic shout to Ares, the Enialios shout, uh, and so forth. And this is all again very. Um, of course, it's religious, and therefore has a to a certain degree an independence um, uh, from f- from pure military considerations. But the fact that everyone employs exactly the same religious ritual or very similar religious ritual before. A battle and up to the point of contact uh, suggests again a very high degree of ritualization and and precisely as you say that we're talking here about something which they conceive to be very much to, to they conceive to be what we would call a sport. They of course have sports too, um, but the Greeks have a particular genius for um, for generating rules. 
from generating competitive rules, uh, which is why, of course, they have the Olympics and um, uh, they have organized athletics in a world uh, where that is not p- particularly common. Um, or at least much less prominent. Uh, to the Greeks, organized athletics are one of the major things uh, that interests them. And this, what this tells us is that they have this genius for coming up with rules uh, to make things fair so that you can tell who is the best. So going back to this idea of standing your ground, this is interesting. This was um, a way the Greeks were inspired by the Homeric epics of displaying courage but because they couldn't uh, do it in single combat, they they evolved it. They they changed it a bit. Where they changed courage to mean stand your ground. Um, I mean, are there particular battles or instances where this idea of courage meaning stand your ground um, really comes into play? Um, well, yes, absolutely. Uh, let me begin simply by saying that that standing your ground is kind of like archery. It is an equivocal virtue in um, in the Iliad. You've got some people saying, we're big heroes, we have to stand our ground. And you've got other people saying, we don't actually have to do this if it's going to get us killed. And then you've got other people who clearly simply don't stand their ground, whatever they think about it. Um, so Homeric warfare is, is much more fluid with people going back and forth and famously, you know, uh, uh, people notice the way in which you're allowed to leave the battlefield if you want a drink or a meal. Uh, you can hang around in the tents for as long as you want, um, ha- have long discussions, um, which are reproduced by Homer uh, with your friends, uh, and then go back to the battle. So it's, it's, it's all very relaxed compared to, um, uh, to later Greek uh, warfare. Um, uh, but um, the uh, when you get into the later period, they have made a clear decision that the Homeric poems did not, that standing your ground is heroic, and specifically that it is the most heroic thing um, uh, that you can do, that they're going to define heroism quite narrowly um, in, in terms of standing your ground. Uh, and then if you want to uh, get a sense of its importance, uh, you'll remember the stand of the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae uh, when the Persians attack. This is in uh, 480 BC, uh, and they basically fight and they fight and they fight um, uh, until um, uh, they are all killed, uh, standing heroically standing their ground. And uh, the poet Simonides uh, writes this, the famous epitaph, which uh, wh- which we all know, a stranger, go tell the Spartans uh, that we lie here according to their laws. Um, and uh, the law is the law to stand your ground. Um, and so um, since, that, since that is the Spartan law, um, they all die there. And of course, the stranger is needed to go tell the Spartans because they're all dead. And they can't, none of them can do it themselves. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. 
a lot of fun, and then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best, become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the Masterclass on Negotiation with Chris Voss. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. So let's, let's shift gears here. We were talking about the ancient Greeks. Um, let's talk about the ancient Romans. So the Greeks had the Iliad to guide them in their approach to war. That's the tradition they looked to. What guided the Romans in their development of their warlike ethos? That's an interesting question because, of course, the Romans start only start writing, at least as far as we know, 
things that survived to us around 200 BC. And their city is founded, um, you know, according to legend, uh, in 753 BC. And so they've had a very, they have a very, very long period, which is essentially unhistorical to us. Um, but they clearly have legends, uh, and much of the early material we have is about their legends. And um, it's always been said, or but not always been said, but it's always been said that history, even their mythical history, uh, their own mythical history is the Iliad and the Odyssey to the Romans. And so they basically, um, uh, they basically preserve a series of stories about um, their early leaders and about how things were in the old days, and that they model themselves uh, on, on, those, on those particular individual people, but without it being, shall we say, canonized in epic poetry. These are stories that are handed down in families and told a mother to child and things, and things like that, and oral tradition, which of course is like, um, exactly like uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, which are oral poems for a very long time, but they're the property of professional bards who memorize them and recite them, and that, that, that doesn't seem to be the case of the Ro- old Roman legends about about their doings in early times. So let's talk about how the, the Romans fought. Um, so the Greeks had the phalanx, and the Romans eventually adopted the phalanx, but how did the Romans fight in the early days of of Rome or the Republic? Well, I mean, before the Romans adopt the phalanx, we really don't know, um, because uh, we don't have any useful records uh, or useful archaeological information. We have a few hints uh, there's a very early temple to Castor and Pollux, um, which who are um, uh, who are of course borrowed from Greeks. We've got the two Greek uh, the two Greek brother gods, um, but they are closely associated both in the Greek and Latin tradition with cavalry. Um, so there might have been some fighting on horseback. Uh, but the truth is, we really cannot. We simply cannot, in honesty, tell. Uh, how they fought before they adopted the Greek phalanx. Um, what we can tell is that the Greek phalanx did not agree with them, uh, because by the time we see them, clearly they've abandoned the Greek phalanx, and or not exactly abandoned it, but collapsed it in such a fashion that individual Roman soldiers can fight as as heroic here as as heroic individuals, much like people fight in the Iliad, so that rather than like the Greeks deciding we're not the Iliad method of single combat doesn't really work, so we're going to do the phalanx. The Romans take the phalanx and they adapt it to allow for uh, individual uh, individual fighting, particularly before battle, uh, in which the young men. Uh, in the first rank, in the velites, are competing with one another um, to um, uh, to challenge the enemy. Uh, this is also true of the cavalry, which is made up of the um, the most noble of the young men, the richest. Um, uh, they're they're challenging each other to to single combats, uh, and the whole system, rather than being a block, uh, is is uh, much more messy. Uh, because it's intended to allow for the for single combats to develop, um, and that is, to my mind, how you get from the, the phalanx, which we know they used, uh, to the classical republican form of, uh, of 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 Roman fighting, which is in the so-called manipular legion, in which the in which the in which the army is divided up uh, into small clumps of men 
rather than simply in an enormous block like the phalanx of old. And were the Romans, like the Greeks, leery of technological advances because it would somehow rob them of honor and glory in battle? Yeah, I mean, you don't... um, You will notice that um, the Romans, much like the Greeks, never make archery a a significant part of their their military thing. Uh, And this is true even under the Roman Empire. Um, they, uh, they disliked, both the Romans and the Greeks disliked the random factor. And I think they particularly associated archery and the fact that, you know, you've got a bunch of people in a, in a, in a swarm who shoot off a bunch of arrows and they, um, you cannot tell whose arrow has hit anybody. So you cannot tell who the heroic person was who shot the arrow. And the arrows strike randomly, uh, and uh, so, and they will strike equally, brave and, and cowardly. Uh, and that's that won't do. I mean, the point is that however you organize the fighting, it has to distinguish between the brave and the cowardly so that the brave will prevail, or at least die heroically, not being shot by an arrow. Uh, and so that the um, uh, so that the cowards will be shown to be cowards, and archery just doesn't do that very well. Okay, so uh, also within the Romans, you talk about these two competing ethoses, these ideas of virtus and disciplina. Ah, you, you, see, you can tell you've had a classical education. You pronounce, <laughs> you pronounce it virtuous, which virtuous. is how a, uh, a classicist would pronounce it. Of course, it begins with a V, and a boring old historian like me tends to pronounce it virtuous. All it means, of course, is manliness, um, and uh, it becomes the, the word for... Um, uh, it becomes the word for courage, or starts as the word for courage. I should point out that this is true both in Greek and Latin, that they don't make a linguistic distinction between manliness and courage. So in Latin, you have virtuous manliness. In Greek, you have andrea, which also means manliness and courage at the same time. Uh, they don't seem, they don't, it's, they don't need or feel they need uh, a linguistic distinction between the two qualities. Um, something which uh, your something which your magazine should uh, contemplate and be delighted by, um, uh, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, what what to my mind happens is that you have um, a very old uh, you have a very old culture of single combat at Rome. Um, that certainly is what it, if if the records mean anything that that is suggested. Um, but that makes it, it makes fighting in formation of any sort very difficult. And um, so my argument is that the Romans also developed this countervailing ethos, disciplina, um, which of course translates into discipline in English, but also means things like you know hard work. So if you're asked to dig a ditch, that's a question of disciplina, um, uh, and um, that whilst the individual soldiers compete in the one in in in, in virtus, the um, uh, the officers, the leaders compete in disciplina to try to keep order uh, among all these young men who wish to fight um, in uh, who wish to fight in individual combat, and uh, the result of this conflict is ultimately. Um, the manipular legion, but it's a it's a happy conflict in that it it manages to 
uh, keep the Romans sufficiently organized so that they can win battles on the big scale. That's what that's disciplina, uh, but also allow them uh, to uh, fight individually in a heroic fashion on the small scale. Uh, that's virtus, um, which makes them incredibly ferocious individually. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, you talk about how far the Romans took this disciplina, how serious they took. I think you mentioned an uh, instance where a general killed his own son, executed his own son for cowardice because he didn't show disciplina. Well, it's not for cowardice. He, it's, he's too brave. Um, this is this is a it's 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 a war in which this is this is Manlius Torquatus, um, and uh, who himself early early in life Manlius Torquatus uh, is challenged uh, to a single combat uh, by an enormous Gaul and uh, is gets permission and goes out and fights it, kills the Gaul and takes his necklace, his torque, which is why he is thereafter called Manlius Torquatus, Manlius the torque guy, right? So he gets older and um, there is another war, but this is a war not against Gauls, but, but, but against Latins, that is to say people who are linguistically and culturally the same as the Romans. And that produces the possibility of severe confusion uh, if there is single combat. So the general Manlius Torquatus on this one occasion forbids single combat, uh, but his son, um, who wishes to be proven as brave as his father, goes out and, and ignores the rule and participates in single combat, uh, and then brings the spoils, the armor back, and lays them before his father and says, look, father, I'm just as glorious as you were, and then his father has him uh, has him executed, uh, for the violation of disciplina, uh, and um, so yes, you've got you've got that's a that's the that sort of test case uh, for the two things in conflict. Uh, it is of interest that this becomes a a, a sort of gross tradition uh, in the house of the manly Etorquati, and this is not the only one of their own sons that they execute. Uh, they develop a custom of doing this, uh, and uh, either. Uh, execute a number of their sons in, in in subsequent years, or those sons, knowing that they are going to be executed, uh, commit honorable suicide. Wow! Yeah, so they take it really serious. Um, and how did the, the the these two conflicting ethoses develop or evolve as Rome changed transition from a republic to an empire? Was there a degradation of the two, or did one take precedent over the over the other? Well. I mean, the uh, the Romans clearly think that both have to be kept going really very strongly, and um, that is what they want to do. Uh, and um, the, the 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 peril is that when you have a professional army, uh, they're going to become better at disciplina because, of course, under the empire, the Romans do have a the, sort of the world's first. Uh, long-service professional army with soldiers serving for 25 years and things like that, uh, paid salaries. Um, there's always a peril uh, that they that things are going to flop over to the discipline aside, uh, and that although they will be, you know, that, that they will be well trained and well disciplined, they will not be as brave. And so the Romans actually work very hard. Uh, at keeping the 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 virtues side going, uh, partially it's their system of uh, of military decorations. Uh, they have the first uh, system of which we know of of military decorations. The Greek give the Greeks give prizes for being the best, um, uh, but the Romans just give prizes for doing various heroic things, like um, uh, say 
taking the life of another soldier and things like that, much more like our system. Uh, but their particular technique is simply because the Romans ultimately, the Greeks think the Greeks think you can teach courage. Um, and uh, this is, of course, debated in Plato at considerable length, but that, that basically seems to be their view. Uh, the Romans don't really think you can teach courage. And uh, if they see, if they think that they're getting people without the right courage uh, to be soldiers, they will simply search until they find people who have, who are brought up right or who have the right courage in their blood. And so what you tend to get is the fact that they start recruiting um, people from wilder and wilder areas of the empire. As the empire becomes more civilized, the Italians cease to want to fight. But then you've got all these Gauls who maintain a military tradition and who have lots of virtues. You can give them disciplina. You cannot give them virtues. So the recruiters first go out into the, into the Gallic provinces and then in later years into Spain. Um, and then after that, particularly uh, onto the German frontier uh, and uh, onto the Balkan frontier, and although they would not probably publicly say it, uh, a lot of these people who are actually joining the Roman army are probably really barbarians from over the border um, who are taken in because they are really, really brave. Uh, and the Romans know that they can discipline them, but they cannot generate bravery. Um, over time, it seems to me you can argue uh, that a practical distinction develops between uh, the the Roman soldier troops, um, or rather the Roman citizen troops, the legions, uh, who seem to um, uh, be, be prized uh, particularly for things like engineering, uh, and the non-Roman citizen troops who are who tend to be um, uh, from wilder areas. Uh, these are the so-called auxiliaries, uh, and uh, they seem to be prized more for actual fighting. Uh, because they have more virtus than the legions. And we can see this reflected in Tacitus, but we can also see it particularly in Trajan's column, uh, where if you count up the fights all the way up the column, you realize that most of the fighting is being done by the auxiliaries, and surprisingly little of the fighting is being done by the Roman citizen legionaries, who are instead depicted building, um, cutting, making roads, cutting down forests. Uh, and I mean, they, they, they appear a lot, but they appear mostly in uh, engineering or parading capacities. Very interesting. So, Ted, you argue in the book that the Greeks, um, like, like the Greeks, the Romans, reverenced the past. Uh, but you argue that while the Greek reverence for their past made Greek armies better, Rome's reverence for their military past made their armies worse. How so? Well, um, my argument is that um, the Greeks, Greek military history is a series of experiments to try to recreate the Homeric epics. Um, the phalanx, which we've always talked, we already talked about, is one of those things. But actually, things get they get better at this as things go on. And Philip II, um, the king of Macedonia, the father of Alexander, uh, produces another set of experiments uh, based, at least we're told, on various passages in the Iliad, uh, which, which make a far more effective army uh, than the Greeks had previously. He then, of course, defeats the Greeks and goes and his, uh, he is murdered, uh, and then his son... Um, uh, briefly defeats the Greeks again, but then goes off and creates this in incredible world empire, 
so Alexander is is phenomenally successful, and he is successful with an army that his father created uh, on the basis of um, uh, of looking back uh, at at the Iliad, and also because his own soldiers coming from Macedonia. Um, have not been civilianized in the way that the, the that a lot of the rest of the Greek um, Greeks have been, and are in fact in fact sort of much more Homeric in their outlook. So if they're Homeric in their outlook and they're fighting in a Homeric way, or think they are, um, this makes for a very effective thing. Very interesting. Um, oh, my argument about the Romans yeah. is that. Um, they lose confidence in the, because particularly in um, uh, the late second and third century, they start having military setbacks. And the third century is, of course, terrible, not only with multiple invasions by barbarians, but also by a lot of civil war and economic collapse and general misery. Um, they lose confidence in their own military tradition. Uh, in 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 the ways they have been fighting over a very very long time, uh, because it doesn't seem to be effective anymore. And uh, but they are of course because they're an ancient people, they're still very past minded. And um, so what they do uh, is is decide okay, well our own traditions aren't helping us here. Uh, let's use the Greek traditions. Uh, and so what you see in the fourth century A.D is the revival of what is essentially a phalanx army. Uh, that is to say that the Romans go back to um, an army which would have been, which is recognized, particularly among the infantry, recognizably the same in equipment uh, and in tactics uh, as, the, um, as the Greeks in the 5th century would have been. That's to say, even before Philip II. Now, there's a certain weird logic to this, because, um, as as one author says, well, um, the only the only folk among us of the Westerners who have ever defeated the Persians were the Greeks. So if we're going to and if we're now losing to the Persians, we should naturally fight like the Greeks did. And you know, we think, well, that's very odd logic. But if you revere the past as much as the as the Romans and the Greeks did, that makes sense. Uh, so what you end up with is a a Roman army, which is a throwback not to Roman military tradition, but to Greek military tradition, uh, and um, which is, as a result, somewhat inflexible uh, and brittle uh, in the way that the Roman army had not been before. Uh, that is to say, in the in the earlier centuries in the Republic and in the earlier Empire. Uh, and it, it, it seems to me that you can make a case that this is, in fact. Um, although it is a historical recre- recreation, it's not a good historical recreation, unlike Philip II, who made a better army with a historical recreation. Um, the Romans make a worse army um, because the phalanx is simply um, just not as effective as the way the Romans themselves used to fight. Uh, something, had the Romans thought about it, they should have been able to tell because, of course, they had defeated themselves, the people, with their own methods of warfare. Um, that fought in these ways, but they were in a desperate situation. They they knew they needed to make some change. They had no confidence in their own tradition, uh, and so they adopt this Greek, this this ancient Greek way of fighting, which proves to be less effective. Very interesting. Well, well, Ted, this has been a great conversation. Where can people learn more about your work and your book, uh, Soldiers and Ghosts? Well, um, the easiest way is to go to the library and um, uh, and and read it. 
uh, in fact, that's uh, in practice uh, the, the best way to proceed. Um, uh, the um, uh, there are there are of course various various book reviews and things like that, but the book is now quite old, um, uh, and so uh, it's it's still universally available. Um, but um, putting your hands on an old review would be uh, would be quite tricky. Um, again, I just say ultimately people should probably um, read the thing. Uh, it's read it's what's written for people who are not academics. That is to say. Uh, it is read. It is written to be interesting um, to people other than college professors. I try to I try to write in a lively style, uh, and um, so you will not be a reader will not be overwhelmed with boredom and horror uh, as, uh, as the normal reader is when faced with an academic book. Well, I can concur. I can I can vouch that this is true. It's a, it's a highly engaging, very readable book. Well, Ted, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you, Brett, for uh, having me on the show. I'm extremely grateful. My guest today was Ted Linden, or J.E. Linden. He's the author of the book, Soldiers and Ghosts, available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also check out the show notes for more information about what we talked about today at aom.is slash linden. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show and have got something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.